Welcome to Grow Chat, a podcast series where we interview economists and social scientists asking about their most recent research papers and publications. The aim of this podcast is to share the invaluable work that economists, sociologists, anthropologists, and historians do, making accessible to the general public and students, independently from their background and preparation. I'm your host, Marco Lecci, PhD student in Economic at Monash University, and with me, directly in the interview, is Sasha Baker, Professor in Economics and Monash and Warwick University. Enjoy the interview. Welcome to the latest edition of our CrossChat podcast. Our guest today is Delios Michalopoulos, who is Professor of Economics at Brown University in Providence, Rhode Island, and we are super pleased to have you. Welcome, Stelios. Hi guys, thank you for having me. Welcome. So today we will be talking about the work that Stelios did with Elias Papayuanu on the long-run effects for the scramble for Africa. And maybe we could start by you telling us a little bit about what it is, the scramble for Africa. Sure, so, um, so the scramble for Africa basically is a period um, in African history, like uh, in the 19th century when uh, Europeans have basically um, already gotten a good chunk of the whole world. And there is one piece that is missing. And this piece is the African continent. Um, and they are really interested in getting resources out of this uh, uh, terra incognita. Um, but the last thing that they want to, to avoid, or the first thing they want to avoid, is getting in conflict with each other. So what they're actually doing, uh, they're setting a series of uh, conferences with the most famous one being the uh, conference in um, uh, Biota von Bismarck. Uh, sorry? In Berlin, right? Yeah. In Berlin. Thank you so much. That takes place for about three months, actually. It goes from uh, uh, November 1881 uh, till basically January 1882, where uh, basically the chancellor invites uh, the interested parties, so eight European powers, that uh, they want to make uh, claims on the African continent. Uh, and in order to avoid getting in conflict on African soil, they just meet and they discuss of what kind of principles they will use uh, once they are uh, on African territory and then how they can claim that this is French, um, African colony, or this is British, or this is Belgian, so on and so forth. Uh, so it's actually a period of history that it involves no Africans, but it will have, end up having huge repercussions for the African continent. Um, because what's going to happen, for, like starting in the Berlin conference and for the next basically 10 years, many maps will be drawn and they will be put in drawers. Decolonization will come in about 1950s, uh, early 1960s. These maps now, these drawers will be opened and they will, these maps now will become relevant and they will delineate the, what we know as most of the contemporary African states, which is in total difference to what has been going on if you think about like borders in Europe. Borders in Europe are an outcome of long wars and like the borders at the end uh, basically ratify what happened during the war. The, in Africa, it's a totally different experiment. There are maps that are drawn upon, uh, you know, um, uh, European uh, um, desks and they will actually help to make reality uh, once uh, independence will happen. So Europeans arrived, they split Africa in many different areas uh, that belongs to me, that belongs to British, the British that belongs to the French. Um, what's the impact of this division? 
did these contribute to conflicts nowadays? So countries like that were divided by the Europeans have more conflict today. That's part of your paper, right? Trying to explain. So again, it starts from the question that, uh, so during that, let me talk a little bit about the colonial period. So during the colonial period, you have these colonial possessions, which are not countries, right? These are just like protectorates. This is basically places where the British will have the right to uh, tax, the right to extract resources, the right to administer. Um, now there's some interesting quotes by basically uh, locals, uh, like the, the king of Yor the Yoruba that says, look, this border, Yoruba by the way, were split uh, uh, between Nigeria and Benin. Um, and so the king would say, look, this line separates the British from the French, but of course it's irrelevant for the Yoruba. This is our home. Okay, fast forward, 50s will take place, decolonization will take place. Um, and the new countries are basically faced with basically uh, the new leaders uh, of the uh, newly minted African countries. They are faced with this kind of problem that for many of their borders, they are like straddled by groups that are on both sides of uh, the border. And that's actually something that they were aware of. Don't, don't, it's not that they were not aware of. The problem was that when uh, during the African Union, uh, this is now the newly independent African countries basically meet uh, to discuss various things. One of the various things that they need to discuss is that they will actually respect the borders. The problem was that, you know, if they opened the issue of map redrawing, they were aware that there are problems. They would actually have to reshuffle the whole political landscape of the continent, which would mean that they would go into internal frictions because, you know, good luck realigning uh, every one of the 56 bilateral borders. So they sidestepped it saying, look, we believe that, you know, we're going to end up in a situation like industrialization will come in earnest. So basically all on this side of the border will be the Kenyans, on the other side will be the Tanzanians. So there is no issue of thinking about the Maasai, all these ethnic uh, divisions and ethnic kind of traits will become irrelevant as we go forward. So let's ratify the borders and let's move on. A couple of countries that will not actually ratify the borders. One of those is uh, Morocco because of the Western Sahara issue. And one of the, and one more is uh, basically Somalia. Somalia actually, if you have a, a mental image of the Somali flag, uh, the emblem, the national emblem is a five pointed star. Um, so reading about this project, one thing that I realized that this five pointed star basically signify the five different countries uh, earlier uh, basically colonial territories, later countries that host uh, the various clans uh, of the Somali nation. So you may well uh, realize that here you already have one country that the very fact that it's various clans, it's various members are found in different countries is something that, that they care deeply about to basically emblazon it, make it part of their national uh, emblem. So, okay, so this has been a long-standing hypothesis now among African historians that look, these borders, which have this particular thing that they were not, they are not an outcome, they are actually an artifact of a colonial design that did not take into account any local realities, that actually this will foment later, once like the, the states will come in, pre, in, in existence, this will be areas of friction. This will be areas of friction because now you will have a bunch of groups that actually uh, they will find themselves split in different 
between different countries, which may become actually now um, you know, victims on the one side of the border, because now your allegiance is unclear, or at least the political narrative would, would make it uh, sound as if now you are not actually one of us, you are on the other side. And that would basically give a legitimation to repress, to basically uh, engage in, 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 in violence, and that would have a, a, you know, a, a, a backlash from the actually split communities. Uh, so that has been a very strong narrative. So there are a bunch of books. There's a very nice book by a historian, Thomas uh, Pakenham. Um, maybe I'm butchering his name. I apologize if I do. Uh, that you know, like basically describes this period between 1870 and early 19th, early 20th century, and then speculates about you know the the consequences of this partition uh, for for the partition split groups. So basically, with Elias, we said, look, that's a big hypothesis out there. Maybe we can actually see how much this is true or how much this is blown out of proportion uh, in in reality. And this is where we started our paper. So the focus of your work is then to see whether partitioned ethnicities, having these ethnic groups on two sides of the border in two different countries, or even three in some cases, it uh, bodes ill and causes trouble, political violence and all that, and civil conflict and international conflict. Correct. So then what we did, we said, okay, now uh, let's, uh, you know, I love maps. Elias and I really love maps. And... Uh, you know, once you, you, you hear, you, you read theories, you read very interesting books, and these books basically create images in your mind. And uh, then, um, thankfully, uh, due to the revolution in economics uh, of the last 10-15 uh, years that uh, we have really integrated, uh, um, you know, geographic information systems in our uh, queries, in our basically inquiries, um, then we said, okay, that's actually uh, this hypothesis, this conjecture, it's really uh, easy to understand it once you gather a bunch of different maps and the, you know, the relevant data sources. So what we did, we basically got uh, the maps from uh, George Peter Murdoch uh, of 1959 that thankfully Nathan Nunn is part of his PhD digitized and that's uh, now basically available to everybody to use. And uh, we intersected it with the national boundaries of today. So then, you know, immediately once you do that, basically you superimpose the national boundaries of the African uh, states on the tribal map of Africa, which again, you know, you can say, look, how well is this delineated or not? It's a long discussion. Let's just say that this is our best and at the same time our worst understanding of the ethnic landscape right around the colonial, uh, the beginning of the colonial era. And then you can actually see that almost a quarter of the groups uh, in, uh, on, on African territory, they seem to be partitioned, split uh, between uh, different countries. And uh, then the second ingredient, we said, okay, fine. So there is something there. There seems to be quite a bit of, you don't see really the national boundaries ever trying to engulf a whole group. They just like cut through uh, homelands without any, 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 like seemingly at least any, um, uh, you know, any care for the local uh, landscape. And then we said, okay, so the problem is that how we will, are we going to get high frequency, very local data on conflict uh, for, for these uh, places, basically. Um, and thankfully, at the same time, that was basically early 2010, uh, that uh, 
several data set from the political scientists have been uh, uh, put together that they were collecting basically information from uh, uh, newspapers, Associated Press, like uh, Agence de France and other local media that they would report on uh, basically events of political violence uh, at a very local level, at the village, uh, at a given city, at a given town. Um, so then we would actually have a, a map of political violence uh, for basically a good chunk of, of the African territory. And, uh, you know, just put the, these, two, these two things together and it was like striking the fact that like looking at just the partitioned ethnicities um, and comparing them to those that are non-partitioned, uh, like you would see like 35% more intense conflict uh, uh, compared to nearby groups. And at some point we said, well, hold on, maybe these are all just border places and borders, you know, they are unstable, uh, even like outside of Africa. So there's nothing weird. There's not, nothing particular about being split. It's just the border effect. And then we said, okay, now let's actually look at all groups by the border, like the centroid are within, let's say 60, 50, 50 60 kilometers. So just like uh, look exactly at border regions in, in, um, in Africa. And then again, you could get variation between some groups would actually be not split and some others would be heavily partitioned. And then you could actually get the same very strong, uh, you know, kind of uh, um, impact. Uh, so um, this was actually, you know, this was, then we said, look, that seems to be strikingly strong in some sense, like it's one of these summary statistics that uh, you don't really need to do a lot of uh, econometric work to, to get this message out because this is just like a summary of means, right? You know, just like the like thing of it in the context of modern development economics, you get the ones that got the treatment. The treatment is you got a line through your territory. You got the guys next door that did not get the treatment. They get no line, no international boundary through their territory. Uh, you know, summary of conflict intensity in one place versus the other, and you could get a very uh, strong, uh, you know, gap between the two. Um, and that was basically the beginning of the paper that we said, look, we need to build upon that. We need to kind of understand why is this actually going on? Um, yeah. And so uh, why do you then think it is going on? What's, what's going on on the ground? So what's going on on the ground? Like then what is the nice thing about these ACLED data sets that we heavily use? The, uh, this is the uh, geo-referenced uh, data set of conflict. Uh, that is a high frequency one that starts from 1997. So relatively late till 2000, uh, up until today actually, but we stopped for our purposes um, in 2014, I think, or just before being published. Um, and then I said, okay, now let me understand what is going on. And then now the nice thing with this database is that actually for, each, every, for every little incident of little or big incident of violence, it would have actually a small description. And what really actually uh, caught my, my, so I was reading like leisurely, there's like, you know, just to get an idea between 97 and 2012, I think where we stop our analysis, um, we have about 55, 60,000, incidents of violence. Some are important, some are less important. So there is lots of abstracts, if you wish, lots of notes that one you know, may, may actually uh, get some uh, information from. Uh, so one thing that actually was very striking, like while reading and then econometrically also came out, is that often in these partition groups, you would actually have a neighboring country intervening. So then it became kind of clear that actually these groups, partition groups, are often used instrumentally 
by the neighboring countries to basically plant some instability next door. And particularly when you were looking at neighbors that are under less democratic uh, institutions and uh, they want to gain legitimacy at home, what they would do, they would say, look, our brethren on the other side of the border suffers. And then they would actually you know, send a bunch of soldiers and then there would be some uh, you know, skirmishes or sometimes it would blow out into uh, full violence. Um, and this is like, it was a very common event that was actually taking place only in the lands of partition groups. Um, so that I think is one, again, like it's, a, it's like a soft reasoning, uh, but I think it was, it was starting making sense to me why now you get this ongoing thing, right? It's not that it's like, it's as we speak, 2015, 2020, is not something that, um, you know, just refers to what happened a hundred years ago. So it's just like in, in instru instrumental use of, of partitioning. And then, you know, you go back to the data and you, you know, interrogate the data. And then, you know, again, we said, okay, probably then what we're gonna end up seeing is uh, that actually these groups end up being basically discriminated domestically. Because once you get some assistance from the other side of the border, that's it somehow. You basically reveal yourself as an enemy of the state. So what the state will do will best play a best response of discrimination. And again, you would find that like, uh, uh, discrimination is common across ethnic groups in Africa, so it's not a rare phenomenon. But among split groups, this probability is 25%. Among non-split groups, this probability is 12%. So this is again like a doubling on the probability of being in the blacklist of discrimination, which would come again with violence, with basically um, you know re um, rebels being able to actually uh, get a fertile territory for getting people. So it would be lots of events that rebels would actually do rallies in order to recruit. And this would be much more common in the places of partitioned ethnicities versus in the nearby groups that there would be not so many actually uh, rallies of rebels uh, getting uh, supports. Um, so that's kind of the image that started emerging from, uh, you know, kind of reading, playing with maps, putting data uh, under the, you know, some scrutiny, econometric scrutiny, going back to read again, going back again to the data. Uh, so uh, it was kind of an interesting uh, 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 exercise that, uh, you know, Elias and I, I think learned a lot basically from this. It seems like you guys have been working on this project for a long time. So like you mentioned about the data, I imagine it took you a lot of time uh, to collect all the data. But was it the most challenging part of writing this paper? The most challenging part is that at the beginning, I could not really believe it. At the beginning, I would say, but like, come on, how can it be that this is so much of a, of a deal? You know, we have in the, you know, in the Western world, we have like, okay, like think about Turkey and, uh, and Iran or Iraq where you have the Kurds. So you have some salient events of like groups split between different countries and these groups actually suffering. And, but then I was saying like, look, there are so many of those in Africa that it cannot be like, they must have come to an equilibrium, right? It's not just like one guy suffers and then, you know, maybe you will get this. There is many guys suffering uh, in terms of this being partitioned across. So it was mostly, the most difficult part of, my, of, my, of this project was my disbelief in the results that then I needed to basically read more uh, and Elias to convince me more that, look, read this book, read another book. 
there's another guy, an African historian that makes this claim again about, uh, you know, in 1980s. So then, you know, it's, it's almost, this is what I love with working with Elias. Like Elias is the positive guy, I'm the negative guy. And that's a fruitful collaboration because, you know, you, you, you need both to, to, you know, to, to run, but not very fast, but also to move, to keep on moving. Otherwise, you would either move very fast and miss the goal or never move and never go anywhere. Uh, what do you find exciting about this line of research? I mean, in general, not just about associated to this paper, being an economic historian, uh, looking at the past, reading across different disciplines, what's, what excites you about this and what's challenging in general? Right. What is exciting? You know, it's, it's, I don't know what is exciting. It's almost saying, <laughs> asking, uh, you know, we don't live many counterfactual selves that, uh, you know, you, 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 are, you live a life of a theorist and a life of, a, of an amateur historian and a life of an econometrician. Um, actually, what I guess what is exciting is at least in this line of research that uh, Sasse is also working uh, and, you know, there's kind of a recent wave of people that contribute to this is like not having to specialize in something, but being able to basically collect um, views and collect tools, uh, hypotheses, conjectures, and, uh, uh, you know, from different parts of economics and not only economics, but also from different neighboring disciplines. So I think the excitement is that you don't need to, to, be, to be a specialist, um, which I know it sounds very anti-economics because we do believe that specialization uh, is, is very important. Um, but at the same time is, uh, is kind of, uh, you know, going into opening new places to go. Uh, and maybe sometimes this goes nowhere, and may some, maybe sometimes this can go a long way. So this uh, this exercise of maps, basically, that many people have done, uh, including Elias and myself, like uh, Nathan Nan, uh, Sasa, digitizing historical censuses and using uh, being clever instruments. I think it's 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 really like putting seeds. On, uh, on soils that have not been harvested. Sometimes these soils are barren and these seeds go nowhere. Sometimes these seeds are, are you know, they're successful and they just uh, uh, keep on generating new uh, second generation seeds and third generation seeds. And, uh, and I guess then you find out after some years that, okay, so that was actually a, a fertile endeavor. It generated more research. It was not just an aberration of uh, Sasa or of Elias, uh, it actually uh, generated some intellectual offspring. Um, yeah, so that's the excitement of basically opening up fields with the uncertainty that many of them may not actually end up bearing fruits, but some actually may. So when uh, did you decide to become an economist? Was that a childhood dream or did that happen accidentally later in life? <laughs> Great question. So um, it is an accident. It is mostly an accident that you see. I, I, if my name is not betraying of my identity and my accent, neither tells you that I'm Greek. Then I need to say here that I'm Greek. Greek means that you, if you end up going to the university, which is what would be the usual path for someone in the '90s, 
um, that would aspire to take a tertiary education, uh, you would have to basically choose early by basically the age of 16, which path you would uh, end up like you there are brackets. So one would be the sciences, uh, the natural sciences, one would be the humanities, the other would be basically social sciences. And then you have to decide very early by the age of 16. So I was a good student. Uh, so I was expected to be either a doctor or a lawyer because these are the, this is that in cultural ranking uh, about, you know, what the good students do and what the lesser good students do. So economists would actually be on the low end of the distribution. So, you know, it's okay. You cannot really end up being a, a doctor. So actually self-select into, um, into something that uh, is, uh, is okay, is, 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 is suits your, uh, your capacity. Now, why I ended up basically being an economist despite being a good student, uh, is because of, of a teacher that I had in, in my in my first grade of uh, of uh, basically in of the high of high school that he told me that look you can be a doctor there are many doctors if you want to look at the a legal you can be a lawyer lawyer means that you will be basically stuck be stuck in Greece forever which is fine this is a beautiful place but it's like you being now stuck in Australia forever you know <laughs> you second think about like is it really the most beautiful place on earth so then he said, look, what you should do is really become an economist because this is, is a starting ground for anything. You can be anything you wish after this. I, I, I turn, go back home, I told this to my father, dad, I'll actually do this. He said, like, what? You'll become an economist? But you're supposed to be a good student. So anyhow, I decided to become an economist. Now, what means to be um, an economist? I, I actually wanted to be, like I said, okay, fine. I, you know, it's like... A kid is always dreaming. So then, okay, fine. I, I took the pill of becoming an economist and now I wanted to, to put some sugar on it. So I basically decided to basically major in um, becoming a diplomat. So this is like my, uh, my first degree is International European Economic Studies. It is kind of uh, conceived in order, uh, a department that you would basically nurture diplomats of economic education. And I talked to another professor of mine, first year of my you know, freshman at, uh, in the university. And he, this guy had this amazing capacity of remembering names. And we were hundreds, so we were 120 people, but he could actually tell Sasha Becker, Marco Lecci, are you telling me this? So, you know, to an 18 year old, it makes you feel as if like someone is talking to you in, 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 like a, in, a, in a very formal way, <laughs> makes you feel, you know, it's a very different, uh, environment. Anyhow, he tells me, look, so Stelio Mihalopoulos, do you actually want to become a diplomat? I said, okay, that's, gonna be, that's my dream right now. So is your dream going around in um, cocktail parties in lesser known parts of the world in your most productive years of life? And then I start thinking, is this actually what I'm dreaming? Is this my, is my dream to become <laughs> someone that goes from one party to another in some uh, parts of the world that see no much, not much action? And then basically goes on explaining to me what is the life of a diplomat. That really there are like some uh, very important positions, but they are very few. The majority is not very exciting as you see in the movies. It's not like you wake up in the middle of the night having to, you know, to stop a war or, or you know, take someone out of jail. This happens very rarely and only in hotspots. And then I was like in, at a loss, like what I'm going to do. <laughs> and then I realized that, uh, I started doing research. I said, okay, I'm going to talk to, my, to other professors. So you see, all my life has been influenced by these touches of very, um, you know, very influential 
professors and teachers that would tell you something and this would actually like, like a ball and they would just take you to the next uh, to the next direction and then you know the next uh, teacher would actually uh, flip you to the next uh, island and uh, you know here i am talking to you that's amazing, amazing. Thank you so much, Stelios. That was fascinating, not just the paper, but also your history. And although I've known you for years, we've never talked about this. So I'm, I'm really, I learned a lot about where you're coming from here. I wanted to keep it between the three of us. That's why. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much again. And uh, yeah, hope to see you again before too long, face to face. Take care. Thanks. Thank you, Stelios. Thank you, Sasha. Thank <laughs> you.